Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Out of the Cave podcast. This podcast, you, you could say it's about a lot of things, but really the real purpose of this podcast is a way for me to have conversations with people I find interesting and want to speak with. I've always been interested in what it means to be a man, personality, relationships, morality, the existence of God, and a bunch of other topics in that same vein. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations and take something away like I will. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. Father Thomas, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Uh, being our first episode, I want to ask you, well, the podcast is, if you don't know, is kind of about masculinity, uh, how men become better men, get out of the cave in two literal senses, you know, the allegory of the cave with Plato ascending out of, uh, you know, the darkness into the light. And then also men today, we kind of retreat to our man caves. And, you know, we, we do have to have that kind of retreat from the world, but we also are meant to be out and in it. So uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, your situation right now. You know, you're a monk. You're now kind of a cloistered monk <laughs> with your situation. Yep. And uh, how your experience with coronavirus, um, like what advice and what kind of um, a mindset you can give us on, on that. But let me go back to the beginning. I want to ask you, so how did you even decide you wanted to be a monk? Like were you raised Catholic? All that. Let's get into that a little bit. Well, to begin with, I, I'm thrilled and honored to be the first guest on what I hope will become an illustrious and, and renowned podcast. So Thank I'm you. happy to be starting things off. I grew up Catholic. I had a wonderful childhood, very faithful parents who, who taught me the, the basics of the faith, both in a doctrinal sense and in a flesh and blood sense of, of how to live a joyful Catholic life. I never wanted to be a monk. That was never on my vocational horizon at all. The priesthood had caught my eye somewhere around the age of 12 when I found a, a really funny and cranky old priest at the church that my family frequented who made the job, the vocation attractive to me. But I filed that thought away as back in my mind as I could as high school came on and sports and girls became the dominant themes of, yeah. of that time. And it was only after the discovery of the intellectual life that I began to take seriously once more the possibility that God was calling me to a radical gift of myself in the form of the priesthood. I discovered the Cistercian Abbey right across the highway from, from UD, the University of Dallas, where I was a student, somewhere in my freshman year. One of the buddies in Madonna Hall said, you should go across the street. There's a monastery full of holy people there. And I thought, I've never been to a monastery, so might as well check it out. I went to Sunday Mass one point, and afterwards I struck up a conversation with the abbot at the time, who was Father Dennis. And I was immediately drawn to his sense of humor, his odd accent. He was one of the refugee monks from Hungary fleeing communism who came to the States in the, he came in the early 60s. And over the course of the next months, I would visit him for spiritual direction. 
And near the end of college, with needing something to do with my life after graduating, it gradually dawned on me that this combination of Cistercian life here, of community teaching and priestly ministry was just tailor-made for me. And after a lot of hemming and hawing and a battle of wills, uh, I realized that gods needed to win. And so I, I signed up after graduating and I've been spoiled ever since by the gifts and, and graces that God has put in my life. Well, that's awesome. Did your uh, spiritual director, for those who don't know, could you maybe like describe what your spiritual director was? Did he like kind of push you or was it just kind of a dialogue and you, you know, thought about it on your own? It was a series of conversations. The term spiritual director sounds in intimidating perhaps to people, but as I understand it, and as Father Dennis modeled it to me, the spiritual director is meant to be the John the Baptist figure pointing his own disciples to Jesus. And so in speaking with Father Dennis, he would give me advice, counsel, perspectives from his own experience on how I could overcome weaknesses, fears, and run more confidently towards Christ. He never pushed the vocation of the Abbey on me. And I'm grateful for that. I, I'm familiar with priests who do that sort of thing to young men or young ladies if they're interested in um, religious life. And I'm quite grateful that he never put any pressure on me for that. Um, he allowed me to see his own life as a model. And he did also invite me to a retreat that the Abbey offers over Easter Triduum. And it was there that I got to see firsthand how the community worked and the, the love the monks had for each other and the friendships that were to be found there. But spiritual direction is, is just a conversation at bottom. And it can take the form of a pep talk. If the person is down, there could be questions about the faith, doubts, um, and an occasional challenge or two if the director thinks that you need a, a kick in the pants. <laughs> it's a yeah, metaphorical kick in the pants. Usually, but with Father Dennis and the Hungarians in general, uh, they, they tell things bluntly. Since English isn't their, their native tongue, they tend to uh, hide nothing in stating the facts as they see them arranged in front of them. Gotcha. Gotcha. So when you became a monk, um, when, what was that process like for you? Like you just felt very called to it. You'd wrestled with God a little bit, uh, like Israel, I guess you could say. And you came to that, that conclusion. And how, how many years ago has that been now? I graduated in 2005. So this is, this August will mark my 15th anniversary of entering the monastery. The process was fairly swift in terms of my, my discernment. I basically decided in April of my senior year that I needed to join. And my novitiate started in August of that same year. And the novice year lasts for one year. That's a 
period of, of open discernment where the novice can leave at any point. There are no vows binding him to stay. Um, even though he does receive a new name and the all-white uh, habit, he's not bound at that point. After one year, if he discerns that he feels called to continue this path, he can make simple vows, which are good in our congregation at least for three years. And as soon as you make simple vows, you receive the black scapular. That is the recognizable color scheme of, of the Cistercians. So the, the black scapular simply means you've made vows. So those simple vows last for three years. We usually uh, renew the simple vows for one additional year. And then at the end of that year, you can petition the abbot and the community to make solemn vows, which would be equivalent to a wedding vow. We pledge ourselves to this place and to the abbots for life. And usually a day or two after we make solemn vows, we'll have uh, the diaconate ordination. And one year following that will be priestly ordination. So altogether from entry until solemn vows, the normal path would be five years. And then the sixth year would, at the end of the sixth year, you'd have the priestly ordination. Gotcha. Yeah. So it's a, it's a good chunk of time to think through things. Did you ever, uh, either like during that process or after have like some serious doubts, like, Oh man, am I doing the right thing? Or was it always just, yeah, I think this is right. I felt at home from the very beginning. I had a, a wonderful novitiate. I started learning Latin. I read all sorts of church fathers. I got to know the Cistercian order. I felt like I belonged here. And the only doubts that I allowed myself to entertain were temptations that I knew were not coming from God. So they were longings for the, the potential wife I left behind and worries about a loss of freedom. But I knew that those were only meant to unseat the very good desire that God had planted in my heart of this vocational path. So the doubts were never serious. And even now, those same doubts and temptations will pop up, but I know what they are. And that makes it a little easier to dismiss them. Yeah, gotcha. <clears throat> I think a lot of people, um, when they look at priests or monks, um, people who are at least Catholic and have an understanding, like oh there's never you know priests are you know this elite class they they've never gone through that they just saw the light and went you know went after it they're like superhumans in a way but what you're saying is like you know you're a human too like we go through the same kind of things absolutely i'm just a, a dude at heart capable <laughs> of mistakes and and sins and well acquainted with the weakness and misery of the human condition there's nothing special about priests and nuns and, and monks in that sense. We hardly have the superhuman strength of will, at least at the outset. We're beset by the same circumstances and outrageous slings of fortunes as, as anyone else. Gotcha. Well, that actually kind of uh, might push me on to the, one of the main questions that I wanted to ask you today. Um, a lot of people, in, uh, including some some close people in my life 
um, have always brought the question of why would a good God allow bad things to happen? Well, just in general and also to good people. And I think that's on a lot of people's minds um, as this coronavirus sweeps through the world, killing a lot of, you know, a lot of family and friends um, and, you know, putting a lot of people in the hospital and, you know, in the broader sense, people who are not directly affected by the virus are being affected, you know, their livelihoods are taken away and things like that. Um, yeah, I wanted to ask you, you know, now that you've actually experienced the virus and have, you know, all these people close to you who are experiencing the virus, maybe if you could talk to that a little bit. It's a perennial question, obviously, and it's not a mistaken question. It arises naturally whenever we don't get our way or don't understand why something happens to us. But I think it's important to recall that the question doesn't have a, a rational answer because our limited intellects simply don't have the vantage point that God enjoys of seeing the whole, seeing everything simultaneous in, in his plan. And you want to avoid the thought that uh, Voltaire ridiculed so rightly in his, his play Candide, that this must be the best of all possible worlds because this is the one God designed. I think there's a definite flaw in that theodicy idea, trying to justify why God allows these things to happen. I think the, the answer that the biblical pages tell us comes in, in the book of Job, which is not always a satisfying answer to the person who demands rational evidence and proof that he can wrap his mind around. The whole premise of the book of Job is that the challenge Job poses to God about why he, an innocent man, is suffering, doesn't receive a detailed logical response. God does not answer Job by saying, well, Job, considering your circumstances that you're a rich man, I thought it would be helpful to you to experience a little misfortune. No, in chapter 38 of Job, God appears to Job out of the whirlwind, the storm, and basically just tells Job to shut up. <laughs> but in spite of that apparently cold, gruff answer, what God instructs Job about in that moment is the fact that Job doesn't have the perspective that God does. And the Christian tradition has always understood Job to be a man who desired an encounter with God and who saw that encounter in this great theophany, reminding him that he indeed doesn't have the vantage point of God, and that the enigmas of God, if they are wrapped in some sort of encounter with the Almighty, are enough to calm Job down and to make him realize that he can't expect a rational, straightforward answer. Um, wrapped up in this question, too, is the, the reason for the incarnation namely the, the Son of God wanting to take on our human weaknesses, our fleshly existence in the person of Jesus. Jesus does not give a syllogism to any of his disciples or Pilate during his earthly existence about why he chose 
to suffer and die for us. He simply did it as an innocent man willing to take on the sins of others so that he could undo the punishments of, of sin and death for us. It's not a, a purely rational answer. It's beyond our ability to comprehend. And that doesn't make faith or trust in God irrational or absurd. It simply means that there is a logos that God has that is above our, our human pay grade and that we have to recognize the gap, the mystery between our perspective on suffering and God's. Gotcha. I think when a lot of people think of God, they kind of think of a, you know, an old man in the clouds uh, as depicted in, you know, the Renaissance uh, time period there. But could you speak to a little bit about what the God, what the Christian God really is kind of his characteristics, not just this, uh, this man in the, you know, in the outer space. (laughs) Sure. Starting with, the first page of the Bible, Genesis 1. God is the majestic, almighty, sovereign over everything. The entire created order is under his domain. And the strange thing about this God is that he's not content like Aristotle's God would be, simply to dwell as the unmoved mover who makes everything move like clockwork and then watches it go indifferent to the day-to-day fates of of human beings. The God of Israel and the Christian God is one who enters into relationship. And through the incarnation, through that full revelation of, of God's self, we come to realize that God is communion. God is not simply a solitary monad up in, up in the sky but rather a communion of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who wish to share their love, their their essence, with human beings. And the way to respond to that love is through the imitation of Christ and the guidance of of the Holy Spirit. So God never um, loses his sovereignty, that, that dramatic ability to control everything. God always remains the the Almighty in the Christian tradition. But you also have paired with that majestic power a very humble willingness to share our misery, to enter into our fears and joys and sorrows and mortality in Christ. And in that way, you have a really beautiful blend of the the, the external and the internal. In St. Augustine's famous words, God is um, superior to anything that is high in me and more interior in me than I am to my own self. And I think that's a great way of, of summing up the Christian understanding of God. Gotcha. So where would we say then that evil enters the world, like where bad things happen, like we're seeing today, God being in control, where would we say that, you know, that the evil originates and him, his willingness to, to enter in, why wouldn't he just, you know, s- stop the bad thing from happening? Sure. That's a, that's a great question. 
you have to make a distinction between what we would call natural evil, so a virus, uh, an earthquake that's not caused by by any specific sin on the or action on the part of human beings. And the coronavirus, maybe you could explain that in, in some way. But moral evil is different than the natural evil. I think from the perspective of, of natural evil, an earthquake, a tsunami, a tornado, something like that. There's a theologian named David Bentley Hart who wrote a very short but lovely book after the um, Indonesia tsunami, maybe 10 years ago, called uh, Where Was God in the Tsunami? or something like that. And his basic conclusion, I think, is accurate, that while God creates and sustains the earth and all material reality in being, it is nevertheless subject to the laws of mortality. And ultimately, what St. Paul calls the principalities and the powers of, of this age, which are fundamentally opposed to God in some sense. On the moral side, with human action, human volition, sin and death enter the world through disobedience, through the inability of the human being to respect the might of God and to desire to become a God unto himself and, and herself. That disobedience is portrayed in the story of the first man and the first woman in Genesis 3, whereby they desire to overcome their limitations as creatures in seeking godlike knowledge and divine status, which is not proper to them. And as a result, they transgress the boundaries that God had set up for them, and sin enters the world as a result of that initial disobedience. And sin always has consequences. And that contributes to the Christian understanding of original sin, whereby all of humanity has imprinted on its soul, so to speak, the consequences of that initial disobedience and has to suffer those consequences till kingdom come. Gotcha. Gotcha. So you spoke a little bit about like how, you know, humans like to control and I, that's something, uh, an idea that I've been kind of exploring recently where it seems like a lot of our actions are come down to control and you see that, you know, with uh, consumerism, our, our, our desire to, you know, to go to space. I think like we just want to control the world ourselves, people, you know, people close to us. Um, do you think that's something that was in us that caused us to want that initially? And, when we say that humans are made in the image and likeness of God, is that something that comes from God? Is that someone in the nature of God to control? Or is that uh, something that comes from original sin? Ooh, nice light questions uh, on, this, on this podcast. I think there's, there's a, a slew of different questions wrapped up in, in what you just asked. Natural curiosity and wonder, which prompt us to look up at the sky and wonder what's there is a beautiful thing. And I would say is a reflection of the logos, the 
ability to reason and think and know that God has implanted in us. And the definition of the image and likeness of God in us, I think, is a combination of our intellect and our will, the head and the heart, so to speak, the ability to, to know certain things, to want to learn more, but also to love and to choose actively to love God and our neighbor and ourselves in a, a healthy way. The distortion of that natural curiosity leads quite easily to pride, I would say, to the desire to, again, transgress the boundaries and seek to have dominion over life itself in a way that is not proper to us. So I think there's a, there's a fine line between the recognition of beauty, the embrace of knowledge for its own sake, the desire to explore and learn more, and the desire to twist and distort what has been naturally given to us in a selfish way that would be antagonistic to God's design. Gotcha. So another thing that I think that makes me think of is um, humans, especially Christians, have this kind of uh, wrestling match with their conscience about what they should do with their lives and how they should live their lives. Um, you know, whether that be how much money should I make? Um, you know, so what do you think is kind of the ideal human life? Maybe not a, this is uh, the job, this is the, <laughs> but how do the, how does Christian morality fit in with how we should live our lives and go about our lives. I think Christian morality at its heart is the good life that God intends for us to have. It's a life of obedience to what is known as the natural law. So the natural law would be those moral precepts that according to the Judeo-Christian tradition, every single human being has to know simply by virtue of being human. These laws are stamped on the human heart. Things such as you do not kill an innocent person, you do not steal what does not belong to you, you're to honor your, your parents. Those stipulations are found in so many moral codes in the ancient world, from Confucius, where you have basically the golden rule just stated in the negative, right? you shall not do to others what you would not want have done to yourself, to Egypt, Israel for sure, um, and various other religions. I think you have the natural law on display. And C.S. Lewis even does a, a compilation of these laws at the end of his book, The Abolition of Man. He calls it the Tao, after the, the Tao Te Ching, but it's the natural law fundamentally. And so those moral laws ingrained in us by the simple fact that we do image God and our ability to think and to know, give us a guide as to how we are to live fully in the light of, of God's love. And conscience would be the witness to that natural law. Conscience, in a very real, beautiful sense, is the 
sanctuary in which God can speak to us and in which we can find refuge, knowing what the next step should be if there's a conflict between the good choice and the, the bad choice. How do you think we, uh, we kind of discern that, that choice? Well, that's the question of, of discernment and the role of the virtue of prudence, I would say. Bishop Barron had a podcast a couple of years ago in which he spoke about this very topic. And I, I think his answer was very eloquent and true. And he said, the path that will lead to the greatest love is the good path for you. Now you might think, well, that's nice and abstract. Concretely, what do I do? But I think there is a, a sense in which you need to always be asking God to point out the path of greatest virtue, of greatest love, by which you can give up your self-will, your own desire to play God or to get what you want in a selfish way, so that you can donate yourself, pour yourself out in service of your neighbor and ultimately of, of God. So the path of, of greatest love is the, the answer I would say to that question. Um, but that has to be um, recognized over the course of a lifetime of, of good little virtues that make it easy for you, relatively speaking, to recognize the good and carry it out. Gotcha, yeah, I think a lot of people when they think of like oh, giving my life or like you know becoming a monk or a priest, it's a sacrifice that they're not willing to make. It's a complete giving up of our freedom. And they, I think they look at it, they don't see it as loving and being happy, but more as just, just suffering for no good reason. What would you, how would you, uh, you know, respond to something like that? From my own experience, I, as, a, as a spiritual director now, I see a lot of fear in a question or objection of that sort. I think people today want to donate themselves to some great cause, to a noble pursuit, but fear holds them back because they're so familiar with yielding to every selfish craving and giving in to the more convenient option, whether that's pleasure or food or entertainment, whatever it might be. And they somehow have their, their magnanimity dulled. They, they find themselves unable to give up that selfishness for some cause greater than, than themselves. And my advice then to people is to learn how to recognize the paralysis that fear can induce in you. If you have a, a dream that you've somehow given up on because it would be too tough, or if you have always known in a sense what would make you happy but shied away from it, you can start in little ways to do what you know is right rather than what is convenient or easy. And in that way, you might build up a little immunity, so to speak, to fear, so that you can conquer it in, in larger projects and, and problems. 
Yeah, I just finished uh, doing Exodus 90, which for those who don't know is a 90 day period where you take on a bunch of aestheticisms. Um, it's like cold showers, no alcohol, no sweets, no television, no movies, um, seven hours of sleep a night, uh, an hour of prayer a day. And for me, it was a really, really hard um, time. Uh, and I think I went in with a very stoic approach where I can just will myself through this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that I've seen a lot in the culture and, you know, I think it, it attracts men, especially that my will will endure, you know, like you, you see that in, you know, some of these movies that have come out in recent years, like the uh, 300 with the Spartans, you know, they're just so strong and um, they can resist anything. Where do you think, uh, for me, it turned into love. Where do you think love comes into that? And how do you, uh, as a priest, you know, in your daily life, bring that in? as a teenager and a college student i was drawn to the the stoic ideal of living it's a manner of not being swayed by emotion not being affected in any outward way by your surroundings so that you can maintain an equilibrium and indeed that is a noble way of living But ultimately, it's an inhuman one because you end up putting down or setting aside the aspirations of the human heart, which would ultimately lead you to love and seek communion. So I think the the initial willpower that you mentioned at the start of Exodus 90 ideally would lead to an understanding of what you're doing. It's not for self-improvement alone or for shaping up your, your, your wimpy physique and disciplining your, your body. It's a gift of yourself in a sense to God so that you make yourself more available to the promptings of God rather than the promptings of, of your own flesh. That I think transforms you from a stoic or, or, Buddhist mindset where you're seeking to annihilate yourself and rid yourself of any emotion to a channel, an aqueduct, so to speak, of God's grace that flows through you and maximizes your emotions, but purifies them and channels them in a a fruitful way, the way of love. Yeah, that's something that's really interesting to me where, you know, I think the ideal man that we, uh, at least society has, is, you know, like uh, in Brad's Pitt, Brad Pitt's character, excuse me, in um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I don't know if you've seen it, but he's kind of this stoic, very calm guy. Nothing affects him. He's like, you know, stunt double for Leonardo DiCaprio's character. And I think we kind of look at that and we're like, that's, I want to be like that. I want to be unaffected emotionally. But what you're saying is that we need to have those emotions, um, but they need to be purified. How what would a man who has these emotions look like? Does he still get angry? Does he, uh, you know, break down and cry? What does that look like? And, you know, you have to clear away stereotypes at the outset, whether it's John Wayne or dirty Harry as the, the cowboy Western strongman, 
or the the Brad Pitt Fight Club type of of dude with the physique and the the firm emotionless facade of a face. You have to eliminate that as your standard definition of of masculinity. I think the definition of masculinity is the word virtue. So the Latin word vir is man. A virtus is originally in Latin, the word for man's strength, which was exhibited on the field of battle, so courage. But that has gradually morphed into a good habit that leads to a full human life and flourishing in in happiness. And virtues are difficult to master. Some are more, some, some people have an easier time with certain virtues because of their temperament, while others will struggle more with a particular virtue because of their temperament. So I think for a healthy masculinity, know thyself. The ancient uh, Delphic Oracle um, maxim is essential. And in this context, know thyself would mean knowing your temperament, how you are disposed to certain actions or in need of greater virtue in resisting temptation or being more patient. The virtuous man can indeed get angry and should get angry if he sees injustice, but he should be prudent in learning how to calculate what the proper response would be to a given situation so that he can draw good out of it. And on top of all that, that would be a a pagan level, so to speak, of virtue. On top of all that, you would have the concept of Christian grace that would strengthen your will to do those good and virtuous things for Christ. Gotcha. Wow. There's a lot of things, a lot of ways I could go with that. But for people who don't know, I'm obsessed with the temperaments. I love uh, just this idea that we all have a different temperament. And uh, maybe uh, for those who don't know, you could explain a little bit about the temperaments and maybe how we can come to know our own. Yeah. The four classical temperaments are uh, a Greek thing developed by um, a fellow named Hippocrates who tied them together with the four humors or or liquids in the the human body. You don't have to get into all that black bile and yellow bile stuff or phlegm, but his understanding of character has withstood the test of time and has been adopted by plenty of Christian theologians. So that he divided up the basic human characters into the the sanguine, the choleric, the melancholic, and the phlegmatic. And each of those temperaments has a certain disposition attached to it. There'll be certain features of a phlegmatic that will allow him or her to react in a certain stereotyped way to specific actions and will make them more disposed to certain virtues than others. So your, your classic sanguine personality is the, the really peppy one that 
that gets excited and has very visceral, instantaneous emotions and might have a hard time following through on tasks because their mind is always going from one wonder to the next. Whereas the, the melancholic would be more pensive, have slower reaction times to their surroundings, but would have very deep-seated emotions that, that take root after a while. Your melancholic would be drawn to the arts, to, to poetry, toward a not a more depressed, but a more solemn perspective on, on the world. Uh, your, your choleric temperament would be your, your leader type, the go-getter, the organizer, who always has things prepared and a schedule in hand and wants to keep things clean and marshal the troops. And your phlegmatic would be similar, I think, to the melancholic in certain regards. Uh, this could be the person you think is just a space cadet because their eyes are always just kind of like this and are pleasant, but have a lot going on inside that takes more time to reflect on. And knowing that about yourself and your own temperament, how you approach a situation or how you react is obviously helpful for self-knowledge, but it's extremely valuable too in helping you navigate relationships. Because if you know someone else's temperament, you can have a sense of why they react the way they do. And you can moderate your own interactions with them based on that knowledge. Yeah, that was actually exactly what I was going to ask you after this. Um, but as a spiritual director, do you think that there's some temperaments that work better? Uh, say like, you know, if somebody was, uh, call to the priesthood or a religious life, would a certain temperament be more inept, adept, adept for that? Or would it be just across the board? It should be across the board. I don't know the stats on the temperaments of, of priests or monks or nuns. I would suppose that monks and nuns, broadly speaking, would be taken more from the phlegmatic and the melancholic temperaments, but there should be an equality of temperaments, a, a healthy diversity, because there is an infinite number of ways in which one can serve God. And God does not mark us out for the priesthood or for the religious life simply because we're a melancholic or, or a phlegmatic. There's an immense uh, creativity that goes into a monastery full of each of the temperaments. I think that's a sign of a healthy community, that we're not just some monolithic blob of sanguines, or well, sanguines would never be monolithic in anything, but there's no single group of temperaments that rules the monastery. There needs to be a, a good harmony of them all. Yeah, definitely. I've always kind of thought that um it's a better thing for diversities and just, you know, uh, who you, who you are, who you identify as, but more how you think and what you bring to the table, um, in terms of like your personality. Another sure. thing with temperaments that I think a lot of people who may not be called religious life, um, are, is how temperaments fit together compatibly or are completely opposed. And for people who are in committed relationships who may be completely opposed, 
is it better for them to completely separate or do you think that they can still recognize their differences and reconcile those? Well, that would be the hope, obviously, that they recognize their differences and don't see those differences as a deal breaker or an impossible situation. The famous saying opposites attract has to be true in this sense. If you, a melancholic male, fall in love with a, a sanguine girl, you're going to need to recognize that she will respond in different ways to a situation than you. And you need to take that in mind when you interact with her. But that self-knowledge on your part and knowledge of her can lead to a greater stretching of your own limits so that you can become more sympathetic to the other, to recognize her needs and, and how she needs to be treated as opposed to um, simply crawling back into your own cave when you recognize that she's responding in a totally weird way that you're not prepared for. There's a learning process in any relationship of that sort. But the, the relationships that flourish find that compatibility through honest communication, through trial and error on occasion, but also through a deep commitment to getting outside of their own selfishness and, and seeking the good of the other, which is the definition of charity. Yeah, I think we've been kind of dancing around that theme of like giving yourself entirely um, to something. I think a lot of people struggle with the idea of like, why? Why should I even do that? <laughs> you know, why should I do it for this person or whatever? If you've ever fallen in love, you would want to give yourself away. Right? You would be so enamored of, of the beloved that whatever you thought would make her happy would be the consuming desire of your own heart. And there's a very real analogy in the priesthood and religious life to that marriage. You have an experience of, of God's love that makes you want to give yourself entirely to Christ without reservation. And that's difficult because we're a bunch of selfish ego monsters 99% of the time. But there's immense liberation in that willingness to sacrifice. Likewise, in, in a marriage, for someone called to that sacrament, the way in which you liberate yourself from the, the prison of your own will is to give yourself away entirely, to live for your spouse. And in that way, you are mirroring with each other the relationship between Christ and the church, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 5. It's a self-donation. It's a total gift, a pouring out of one's entire life. And that is the most noble way to live possible, when you're no longer living for yourself, but for Christ, through your wife, your spouse, or through your vows as a monk, or your, your priestly ordination. Yeah, so that's, the, that's a, exactly what we're talking about. That's the, the happy life, right? The, we find joy there. Absolutely. And this gets back to, to Genesis 1, that notion of man and woman is created in the image and likeness of God. If God is communion, 
by nature, a communion of persons, then the way in which we image God fundamentally has something to do with the communion we enter into with others. No man is an island. No human being is fulfilled on his own or on her own. There's the need to seek out communion and to find happiness in something external to your own will. And I think people who realize that, who, who fall in love and remain committed to that love through thick and thin, recognize that there is great freedom in service. In the service of God, you find your perfect freedom because you find the proper way in which you can give yourself away. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, no, totally. I think that's why so many people, uh, th this mindset that we have in the West of just consume, uh, become as wealthy as you can, you know, get the, get the girl, get the car, all these things where it seems like it's so much more simple. Uh, like you said, it's, it's, it's freedom and it's, uh, it's joy just to, to give yourself and sacrifice rather than trying to achieve and, and, earn these things rather than give of yourself to others. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, experience is essential here. If you are totally unaccustomed to yielding to someone else's will and you're familiar only with satisfying whatever cravings come to you from day to day or hour to hour, the experience of Christian freedom is going to be totally foreign to you because you'll want to maintain that, that majestic self who can determine his own rules and how he lives. That's ultimately, from our perspective, a tragic slavery because if you are purely living to satisfy your lusts and your desire for power or prestige, you will never have enough of what you want. This is, this is the wolf in Dante's opening canto of the Inferno. The, the wolf is so thin because every time she gets what she wants, every time she eats something, her hunger is only intensified. There's this endless craving for stuff. You're never going to have enough. And that leads to spiritual exhaustion, but it also leads to a very unhappy life at its core. Yeah, I was talking to a friend recently who's trying to figure out what career they're they're going to follow, and he was commenting on uh, he's god godfather to his friend's two sons, and he was commenting on how his friend went about getting married and and the job he chose. I believe he's a he's a like an industry like he works like as an electrician or something like that, and he his thought process as he explained to me was just I like this girl we're a good fit we're getting married now we're having kids and I'm working and, and it, he lives a very simple life. Uh, and a lot of people on the outside would look at that and say, dude, what are you doing? Like you're total failure. Uh, you know, you got married way too young. You weren't totally set up uh, to have kids, you know, all these things. And my friend was commenting, like, it just seems so, so good. Um, but the world, you know, would look at that and say, it's horrible. You can sense people like that just, by interacting with them for a few minutes, there's a certain joy that, that radiates from them. And it's not broadcast usually in any, in any sense, it's subtle, but 
they have a, a certain ability to prioritize love rather than, than selfishness. And if you're not, again, accustomed to that way of thinking, it will seem strange, but you're absolutely right. If love is the highest good that you can aim for, everything else is secondary. And for that fellow and his marriage, he's living that out in a very concrete way and a beautiful way. Yeah, definitely. It's, it reminds me of the, uh, this idea of struggling to, to live simply. Uh, the, the rich man uh, that, that wants to follow Jesus and Jesus says, all right, well then give up everything you have and come follow me. And he goes away and says, he goes away sad. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think it's so hard for people who want to follow Jesus? Uh, this is, I guess, going back to a question I had a long, long time ago here. Um, why is it so hard for people to, to give that up? And then, yeah, how do we incorporate the wealth we do have? Like, should we just, you know, give all these things away? Like, you know, or is it okay to have these things? There's a shiny allure to the acquisition of, of money and, and power. And the, the lesser angels of our nature are constantly urging us to pursue those things as the absolute, as the only things worth sacrificing for. But again, that gets back to this notion of the insatiable nature of those needs and desires. They consume you as you seek to consume whatever you can in order to build up your, your wealth or your prestige. Properly understood, I think what Jesus is getting at in all of his interactions with, with the rich and all of his parables about money, especially in Luke's gospel, is a proper ordering of, of goods. If your highest good is to know, love, and serve God, then you will see whatever you have acquired, whatever you've inherited, whatever you've been blessed with, as an opportunity to serve God and, and others. So the acquisition of, of wealth is not in itself evil at all. It's rather easily though a temptation if you do not have the goods properly ordered in your life. And I think when Jesus encourages the rich man to go sell all you have, he's testing him to see where is your heart? Are you able to detach yourself from these things? Should they be taken away from you? And the rich man at that point clearly isn't. And so he goes away sad. And yet what I really love about those gospel passages is the the cliffhanger nature of them. The rich man goes away sad in the passage. What happens next? Does he eventually come around? Does he see a disciple witnessing to him in that beautiful and liberating way? And that means ultimately that we turn into the rich man in the, in the story. The cliffhanger has to be uh, solved or, or ended by, by our own actions. Yeah, I think that's a, that leads to my last thing here. Yeah, how in this, in this time of coronavirus, so many things are being taken away from us. How do we just detach and 
I think it's kind of what we've been talking about is just giving it to God really and trusting that he has our best in mind. This time of sheltering in place is a great reminder that we control very little about our own lives, right? Especially when we, we can't come and go as we please. We could yield to a temptation to be bitter about that and you know, shake our fist at the man and say, why are you letting all this crap happen? But I think the forced monastic life that many people are leading now can lead to many blessings, which people reevaluate what they're living for. I wouldn't be surprised if this time produced a little spike in vocations to the monastic life and, and the priesthood for that very reason. But I think people can allow themselves to pause and reflect on what they're living for. And ultimately, this is a point that I didn't mention at the start when you asked about the problem of evil. There is a medicinal value in suffering, properly understood. Um, and this, this notion has its limits for sure, but I think there is a way in which suffering can be a mercy for us because it reminds us that we are mortal, that we're frail, and that we are not the ultimate uncaused cause of our own lives. There is a limit to our, our power and to what we can control. And that awareness of suffering should make us more merciful to others who are in the same boat as we are. But it could also open us to the God who allows these things to happen so that we could draw some good out of it and rely more on him rather than on our own devices, our own volition. Awesome. Well, that's about all the time we have, but this has been a great conversation. Thank you so much for uh, taking the time. You're quite welcome, Vincent. Those were good questions and I had a happy time answering them. The time went quite quickly. It was, it was so fun to banter back and forth. Yeah, it did. Well, Thank you so much. I hope to have you back on again soon. Excellent. I'd be happy to. Well, there you have it. The first episode of the Out of the Cave podcast is over, and I hope you got something out of it like I did. Thanks for stopping by, and I hope you come back for the next one.